So hey everybody, this is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Today's show is that the world may be coming to an end if the United States gets away with its plans, because it truly plans to take over the world and destroy any opposition inside and outside of its borders. The Biden-Harris administration is even more dangerous internationally than Donald Trump because it's more coherent, as it's saying one of the criticisms of Donald Trump was that he wasn't good with his allies. And now the United States is getting back Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, India, England, France, every colonial power, every genocidal power, as they call it, our allies, the great democracies. I mean, they just assert the great democracies. But the challenge is to us, can we build a movement independent of, to the left of the Democratic Party? Can we rebuild an anti-imperialist movement in a country that has absolutely destroyed its opposition inside and out, murdered its opponents inside and out? That's the challenge to me, more than you. I've been in prison for my beliefs. I have spent my life, more than 50 years, fighting this system. And I understand that I'm just scratching the surface of my own opposition right now. I've had two very transformative experiences. The first is I worked with Vishma Satgar and a group called COPAC in South Africa. Thanks to my friend also Quincy Saul of the Eco-Socialist International who created that relationship and introduction. I spent last Saturday in South Central Los Angeles, I'm happy to say, in the Strategy and Soul block party that we're going to have every Saturday from 10 to 4 at 3546 Martin Luther King, where at least 50 people came, the majority of whom were black, and we began to discuss why the United States and the drug companies are denying the vaccines to Africa, and we told people that we wouldn't get involved in the fight against vaccine imperialism, where only 20% of Africa is even planned to be receiving the vaccines by the end of this year, or I should say Merck and Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, AstraZeneca, there's more vaccines in Canada than the number of people that they could even inoculate. They have a surplus in Canada and they're stealing vaccines from the third world. The next morning, I got up at 5 during daylight savings time, not knowing if the webinar would start at 5 or 6. It turned out it was at 6, but I was too late to go back to sleep, so I stayed up. And I spent three hours listening to a webinar in which African leaders were talking about the intersection of U.S. imperialist intervention in Africa, 
of China's relative positivity in Africa and the United States' effort to destroy that, of the intersection of European imperialist domination of Africa still in a neo-colonial context, and the intersection of climate survival, the fight against climate change and imperialist climate change, food sovereignty, people are starving to death because of both climate change, genetically modified foods, the domination of agribusiness, and again, the World Trade Organization, dominated by the United States. Vaccine imperialism, food security, climate, continued right-wing counter-revolutionary governments in Africa, fighting progressive governments in Africa, and the U.S. disgusting Portugal, France, England, Germany, they're all in Africa, redominating Africa as Africa fights for self-determination. I left there with my head spinning about the obligations to my own organization, the Labor Community Strategy Center, talking with Channing Martinez, talking with our team about our growing international obligations. And yes, we do plan to initiate some kind of campaign around vaccines for Africa. Then I was invited by Frank Doral and Rachel Bronke and Code Pink. Frank works with Addicted to War. Rachel works with Witness to Peace and Code Pink to sponsor the Cold War Truth Commission. And I was invited to speak, and I have to say allowed to speak, which was great. And you'll hear my talk today. If my mind was blown at the first meeting, whatever the geometric expansion of consciousness is like, when two geometric expansions of consciousness intersect, it's where I am now, where my mind is capable of understanding this, thank God. I've spent 50, 70 years studying this stuff. I have the framework to understand it, but the facts are greater than my ability to understand them. So I have to study and study and study and keep reconstructing my understanding of what's going on. But the fundamental thing that's going on is that Biden and Harris, in my opinion right now, and it could have been Trump and Pence, are the greatest danger to the world. The difference is that a lot of people listening today would agree about Trump and Pence, but would say, come on, you're exaggerating about Biden-Harris. Or other people would say, I totally agree with you, it's a capitalist system, blah, 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 and they can't organize their way out of a paper bag. So the people that are most radical, for the most part, are irrelevant, mainly white. The people who are close to the Democratic Party cannot touch this, will not touch this. So how do we rebuild an independent social movement that has a base on the ground? So I'm going to tell you what I learned at the Cold War Truth Commission, or I'll tell you some of the things. The first thing to say is that we're going to be having four entire presentations on the show today. The first will be from Gail Walker. She is the daughter 
of the Reverend Lucius Walker, who is the founder of IFCO Pastors for Peace, Interfaith Community Organizations, Fighting for Peace, one of the great friends of the Cuban government fighting against the U.S. effort to crush the Cuban Revolution. Then we're going to hear Medea Benjamin, who makes a tremendous presentation about first the revolutionary great possibilities, in particular for Limo in Mozambique, her direct experience in Africa, and again watching the United States and the colonial powers destroy or try to destroy every form of independent self-determination in Africa. Then we're going to hear Jody Evans, also from Code Pink, give another, in my opinion, sensational presentation about the long history of European and U.S. colonialism in China, and China as the greatest hope for the world right now, the struggle because we need countervailing power against the United States. So starting with myself, and you have to understand that when you say this, you're in danger, unless you have nothing going, and I have a little going. The movement in the United States must ally with the self-determination of Russia, the self-determination of China, the self-determination of Iran and Iraq, Venezuela, Yemen. It really doesn't matter what we think of their governments, although in the case of China, and even in some way Russia, I believe they're fighting to preserve the possibility of a proletarian third world civilization against U.S. imperialism. I do. I also think that the fact that China and Russia, who have long time adversaries, if not enemies, going as early as to Stalin's uh, very chauvinist response to the Chinese Revolution, and eventually by 1970, Nixon and Kissinger's alliance with China against the Soviet Union, the fact that China and Russia now are trying to build an alliance not against the United States, not to attack the United States, but an alliance for self-protection, self-determination, as the United States explicitly now is working for what they call regime change in China, trying to overthrow the government of China, trying to balkanize Russia, trying to take over Antarctica, take over Siberia for all rights. So let's be clear that Lloyd Austin, who I'm going to talk about, our new Secretary of Defense, is a war criminal, but he's black. Or I should say he's a war criminal and he's black. And there's going to be a new set of multiracial, more gender-balanced imperialists carrying out genocide all over the world. And we're going to have to build a black... Latino, Latinx, Third World Alliance against U.S. imperialism. That's the strategy. That's what the show is going to be about every day. That's what the show has been about. And then you're going to listen to me, Eric Mann, finish up about some very specific ideas about organizing, but namely that we need people in the public school system 
teachers for peace, teachers to stand for self-determination, to stop all U.S. attacks on China, Russia, and Venezuela, and to bring that into their union, the UTLA, to bring it into their classrooms, to bring it into the community. We need community organizers in the black community, in the Latino community, to say, we don't just want immigration into the greatest war criminal in the world. We want self-determination and we want to support the liberation struggles in Venezuela, Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador. We have lost the international anti-imperialist movement. It's very, very weak in the United States because it's been crushed. And I guess you could say uh, for the next 20 years of my act, I'm going to be paying more attention to building the international element of the black Latinx third world united front. I want to give you one example of who is Lloyd Austin and why does he present a terrible danger to the black community and to the progressive community. But of course, he it's not him. He's part of U.S. imperialism. He's part of Biden-Harris. Lloyd Austin is a graduate of West Point. He became, under Obama, the commander of CENTCOM. CENTCOM is U.S. control of the Middle East. Imagine that the U.S. Army divides up the world, AFRICOM, CENTCOM, I got to figure out what the ASIACOM is, and then they put a general in charge, they have all their military bases, the CIA. So listen to these objectives he had to carry out. Deterring Iran, negotiated resolution of the conflict in Afghanistan, obviously on behalf of the United States, maintaining defeat ISIS campaign in Syria and Iraq, which means, of course, intervention in Syria and Iraq, countering the UAS threat, weaponization of internally displaced persons and refugees. That was his job, mass murder. But then he leaves CENTCOM to go work for Raytheon. I want to tell you what Raytheon did. It's a defense contractor. It says, innovation, speed, disruption. Raytheon makes machines that think and learn. Missiles that travel five times the speed of sound. Micro-networks that control swarming robots and tell soldiers where the enemy is hiding. All are part of the U.S. national defense strategy, a plan to give the military a decisive and deterrent technological advantage over adversaries. And Raytheon, with experience spanning cyber warfare, precision weapons, and human-machine interaction is working to bring those technologies to the battlefield and also technologies for the future battle space. That's what we're up against, sisters and brothers. Listen carefully, and if you want to get involved, write to us at info at thestrategycenter.org, and Channing Martinez and other organizers will get back to you because the Strategy Center wants to fight in support of the rights of the people in China, support of the rights of people in Russia, 
and to stop our government's effort to control the world and prevent everybody from breathing. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming on the web at kpfk.org. And check us out at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Also check out this podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, and anywhere else you can find us. So Gail Walker is executive director or director of IFCO Pastors for Peace, and I will let her take it away. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and Frank and, and the whole team. What a tremendously rich and important event. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm just going to try to make this concise. Uh, wanted to follow up on the, the role of the faith community in the fight against the Cold War. Uh, Peter's just his presentation, I think, was just so rich and so, so powerful. Uh, too often, we know that the religious right has attempted to claim what it means to be a person of faith, but it has been my experience to see clergy that I respect. And for me, uh, especially Black clergy, um, case in point was the radical MLK that Jeff Cohen just referred to. Um, it's been my experience to see them step up to support movements and issues of concern to those of us fighting against injustice, from the savagery of, uh, of uh, slavery to the vicious impact of Jim Crow, from the criminal legacy of police brutality to the campaigns of wicked barbarity waged by the U.S. empire at home and abroad. And as Dr. Leah Gunning Francis, who wrote about the role of spirituality during the uprising in Ferguson, Missouri, following the murder of Michael Brown, said, quote, being called to lead a faithful life can take us to places we never expected to go with people who never expected us to join hands with them. I just always feel that that's such a powerful statement. But liberation theology has historically been connected to the fight for uh, social justice as Peter was laying out in, in a world that it oppresses and as such is a tangible expression of what it means to work with God, to embrace a future filled with hope is what it means to walk with God. So whether you identify as a person of faith or not, we all benefit from embracing hope. And I've been asked to just say a few words this evening about the legacy of my father, the late Reverend Lucius Walker, a visionary pastor for peace, uh, who wore so many hats, but I just want to speak briefly about his work with IFCO, the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization. For the past 53 years, IFCO, much, much of it under the leadership of my father, has followed in that tradition of liberation theology. IFCO has organized and supported a variety of social justice issues and campaigns across the world associated with the historic and current Cold War. Uh, domestically uh, involved in the call for reparations, support of Native American uh, rights, farm labor organizers fighting injustice uh, of, um, for forced sterilization of women, calling for the brutality of the Klan, other white supremacists and modern day right-wing extremists and standing up for political prisoners, uh, working on issues like hunger and homelessness and environmental racism. Internationally, IFCO's work has involved campaigns supporting our brothers and sisters in Africa and Central America, Chiapas, Mexico, Cuba, Haiti, Palestine, Venezuela, and more. Some of you know that IFCO's work to identify the hypocrisy of the so-called low intensity warfare in Central America is what led to the creation of a special project that my father labeled Pastors for Peace. 
And I was with him in 1988 when a passenger ferry carrying 200 Nicaraguan civilians and uh, an IFCO study delegation were attacked by US funded Contras who Ronald Reagan called quote, freedom fighters, right? The attack started with individual gunfire followed by automatic gun machine gun fire and then heavy artillery that violently shook the ferry boat from side to side. Uh, the weapons that the Contras used in that attack and the countless others uh, that the Nicaraguan civilian population were forced to endure throughout the Reagan era were all paid for with US tax dollars. And that attack resulted in the deaths of two people, um, dozens wounded, including my father. Uh, the first caravan, the first Pastors for Peace caravan returned to Nicaragua six months later on Christmas Eve with a busload of material aid for communities um, from communities in the United States where clergy and activists had stopped to educate US citizens about the reality of the brutal US foreign policy in the region. Um, our caravan served to illustrate an alternative people-to-people -people foreign policy model based on love and mutual respect. And since then, IFCO's continued to illustrate that commitment to social justice working alongside people of conscience and people of faith. So whether that faith be in our fellow human beings or in a particular religious belief, uh, we've worked together. We've organized dozens of caravans throughout Central America and the Caribbean embracing our commitment to fundamental social change, not charity. Uh, in short, it was my dad's belief that all people who struggled for justice were pastors. Uh, so at IFCO, we continue that work. We continue to work with all kinds of pastors for peace. And we continue to work because we believe that the foundation that he helped to build uh, is really served as a blueprint for us to continue the important work of fighting for justice through action and education, encouraging us all to be shepherds for peace. And as he would call us to do time and time again to step up and be real revolutionaries by practicing our faith. I think now we're gonna have courtesy of my dear friend, Rachel Brunke, uh, a beautiful but brief uh, video tribute to my father, the Reverend Lucius Walker, whose revolutionary spirit lives on. Thank you. Lucius Walker, founder of IFCO Pastors for Peace, was a highly effective and infectious thorn in the side of the US's hateful Cold War policies. While in Nicaragua in the 1980s, he was shot by Contra mercenary fire. He was inspired to begin solidarity caravans of aid to Central America, and later, after the fall of the Soviet Union, to Cuba as the United States tightened its economic blockade against the island nation. The caravans have been going ever since, and for decades crisscrossed the entire United States on an annual basis, countering the U.S. Cold War lies about Cuba and its importance to the world. Lucius was a bold and principled man of the cloth. He was a revolutionary thinker who never asked permission to build friendships between people or nations that the United States told us to fear and to hate. In fact, we should need permission to wage war, not permission to make peace. Love, he said, was the only license we needed to go to Cuba. Lucius Walker was a great visionary and a liberator of minds and hearts. He passed away in 2010, and to me he was our king in the Cuba Solidarity Movement. His profound work to bust through the U.S. Cold War blockade against Cuba is carried on today by his daughter, Gail Walker, 
director of IFCO. She is pictured here alongside American graduates of the Latin American School of Medicine in Havana, Cuba. They are now doctors, part of more than 150 Americans who have graduated along with tens of thousands of others from around the world from the Free Medical School. If you know of any young Americans under the age of 25 from economically disadvantaged backgrounds who have dreamed of becoming a doctor, please let them know about this opportunity and to contact IFCO, Pastors for Peace. Lucius Walker, presente. Presente. That's my gift to you, Gail. <laughs> John and Mai's gift to you. Um, thank you. Next, we have um, a super special guest. Uh, Medea is moving up in the program a little. Thank you so much on the East Coast for, for staying uh, awake and with us, Medea. Um, she will be speaking on her experience with the seeing the Cold War's effect on the African liberation struggles in Africa. Medea Benjamin is the co-founder of the group Code Pink, Women for Peace, and the co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. She has been an advocate for social justice for more than 40 years. Medea writes books. She speaks at many anti-war events. She organizes and takes activists to other countries, and she has spoken out at government events, where she is often removed from the room for interrupting. But she is actually speaking truth to power. Medea? Well, thank you so much, Rachel. And it's really amazing what you and Frank and Mary behind the scenes there have organized. I've met people uh, or seen and heard them that I've long wanted to meet. And it just seems like such a rich uh, bringing together of so many aspects of this Cold War. Uh, like many of the other speakers, my life has really been shaped by the Cold War, including the Vietnam War. Uh, when I was in high school, I was taught that if we didn't stop communism over there, we would be fighting communism here at home. And then when my sister's boyfriend was drafted to go and fight in Vietnam, and he sent her home the ear of a Viet Cong as a souvenir, that's when I joined the anti-war movement, which I have never left. Uh, my government's hatred of communism really uh, inspired me to learn more about it, not just by reading the books of Marx and Lenin, uh, but also first as a hippie and later as a UN nutritionist and an economist, uh, traveling the world in support of liberation and socialist struggles. And everywhere I went, I was devastated to find that my own government was supporting the most reactionary forces that were trying to quash any of these experiments. This was especially true in Africa, where anti-communism and US corporate interests colored virtually every aspect of US policy. Take, for example, the Congo, formerly a colony of Belgium, where the liberation leader, Patrice Lumumba, scared the US corporations. They feared they would lose access to the nation's vast minerals. Uh, they accused him of being close to the Soviets. And in 1961, the US government helped orchestrate a coup in which he was killed and replaced with the dictator, Mobuto Sesi Seku, who robbed the nation's resources, ruled over the people brutally for three decades. Anti-communism put the US in bed with the despicable apartheid government in South Africa, the brutal Portuguese colonial rulers in Angola, Mozambique, and Ibasau, the white minority government of Ian Smith in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, which only yielded to majority rule in 1980. 
I worked in uh, Africa for much of the uh, latter part of the 70s and into the uh, early part of the 80s. And I saw firsthand the devastation of the Cold War. I wanna give the example when I went to work in Mozambique. Mozambique had just won its independence in 1975 after a long grueling armed struggle. But there was elation that they were building something new, something exciting, something different. The president was Samora Machel. His wife was Grassa Machel, who later married Nelson Mandela after Michelle died in a mysterious plane crash. But Samora Michelle was a terrific leader. He used to be a nurse. He left nursing to join the liberation struggle and fight with the movement for Limo. After independence, I remember he would gather thousands of people together every single week in the sports stadium. And first they would start out singing with five-part harmony. Uh, and then he would give long talks and have discussions with the people and empower them about building a new society. The Portuguese had been among the worst, well, the worst colonizers in the world. They left a totally impoverished nation with a 95% illiteracy rate. Frilimo's motto was each one teach one and everywhere you looked, under the trees, under the rooftops, in the evenings, in the schools, people would teach each other how to read and write, how to add and, sub add and subtract. I was working as a nutritionist and every day we work with farmers in the fields to increase yield so they could better feed the people. Everywhere there was tremendous excitement. We were building a new society, becoming a model for the rest of Africa, a model of cooperation, overcoming tribal differences, liberating women, empowering youth. But this cooperative model of empowered black citizens was a threat to US allies in the white ruled South Africa and Rhodesia. They labeled the Mozambican government communist and began funding an armed opposition movement called Reynamo. Reynamo began to attack villages. They burned entire villages, raped women, took them as sex slaves. They forced children to become soldiers. In fact, a third of their forces were children. They destroyed hospitals, roads, schools, any infrastructure that existed. This war lasted for 15 years. About a million people were killed or starved, 5 million displaced. The US government's own study said, a large number of civilians in these attacks were victims of purposeful shooting deaths and executions, of axing, killing, bayoneting, burning to death, forced drowning and asphyxiation, and other forms of murder where no meaningful resistance or defense is present. This sounds very much like the extremist forces terroring Mozambicans today, who call themselves followers of ISIS and publicly behead women and children. One can make the argument that the breakdown of society during Renamo's long, brutal war paved the way for the devastating attacks today. While Africa continues to feel the consequences of the last Cold War, it's also the site of competition today between the United States and China. China is expanding its influence by building infrastructure and making investments all over the continent, including buying up land. The US is building military bases and beefing up AFRICOM. But if you wanna see a real example of solidarity with Africa, look at the poor small island nation of Cuba. While working in Africa, I met Cubans all over the continent. 
They weren't exploiting the resources or profiting from business ventures or building up military bases. No, some of them were there as soldiers to stop right-wing forces, but most of them, over 100,000 Cubans, went to Africa working as much needed doctors, nurses, teachers, technicians, and living in some of the poorest villages on the continent. And tens of thousands of African youth were invited to Cuba to study for free, becoming doctors, engineers, and other professionals. Most recently, Cuban doctors and nurses have been traveling around the continent, treating people for COVID and stopping its spread. It's amazing that this impoverished island nation of 11 million people battered by the United States for 60 years as part of the Cold War exemplifies such a beautiful example of solidarity. As Mozambique's first president, Samora Michel said back in 1975, international solidarity is not an act of charity. It's an act of unity between allies fighting on different terrains towards the same objectives. The foremost of these objectives, he said, is to aid the development of humanity to the highest level possible. Let us practice solidarity by working hard to shut down AFRICOM and US bases now littered across the continent. Let us work together with our African neighbors to fight COVID and other diseases and hunger at home and abroad and address the climate crisis that's creating million of African, millions of African refugees. As Samora Michel ended every talk with the people, a luta continua, victoria es certa. The struggle continues, victory is certain. Thank you. Our next testifier is Jody Evans, and thank you so much for being here. She is the co-founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace, and campaign coordinator for China is Not Our Enemy. She has been a visionary advocate for peace for several decades. Whether in boardrooms or war zones, legislative offices or neighborhood streets, Jody's enthusiasm for a world at peace infuses conciliation, optimism, and activism wherever she goes. And she's a very, very generous woman who opens up her home to have the Code Pink LA meetings there. Very much appreciated. Jody, your testimony. Thank you, Rachel, um, for this brilliant organizing. Of course, uh, you, Frank, for being just the rock star, tireless peace activist and organizer you are. I'm blown away by this day. Thank you for inviting me uh, to talk about China and their history. I want to start with a little Vijay Prashad, who also warns that something gets lost in calling it a Cold War instead of naming it as an aggression directed from the US foreign policy that desires to rule the world. So call it by its name, barbaric imperialism. I was living part-time in China before COVID changed our capacities to travel and living there made me hyper aware of the propaganda of hate and lies that was flowing from scores of media sources towards China. It felt very familiar to the early days of the push for war in Iraq. That propaganda has already brought a war against Asians in the streets of the United States. This is a truth commission and there has been so much truth and beauty shared today. I want to start by saying the names of the victims of the war this week that happened on the anniversary of the Meilai massacre. Soon Chung Park, Hyun Jung Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Young A. 
Yay. Delania Ashley Yon, Paul Andre Michaels, Chaoji Tan, Dayo Feng. May you rest in peace and love. There have been over 3,000 other attacks that have taken place in the last year, and Code Pink has been raising concerns about the Asian hate this propaganda is driving. We have a national call to action March 27th with a big coalition of groups. It's across the country. We hope you will join us. I'll put the links in the chat, including reaching out to Kamala Harris and the White House about ending their hateful language towards China. So the desire to crush China is not new. And we in the United States know little about China. So that's my offering today. The opposite of hate is love, which is compassion. And to be with another is to know a bit about them. We think of ourselves as affluent in the US, but we are impoverished Americans in our understanding of the world. Imperialist desires to own China go back to the opium wars of 1839. It starts with England wanting to dismantle China after raping and pillaging India. This is also the first invasion of Afghanistan control the region by European powers. So let's begin with the awareness that China has experienced imperialist terror for a very long time. Before the Opium Wars in 1837, China represented 25% of global GDP and Beijing was larger than London. After World War II in 1949, China represented 5% global GDP and was one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. In China, World War II started in 1937 with the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. This is when the axis between Germany, Italy, and Japan were executing their plan to hit the Soviet Union from the East and West and crush China to take over the world. Before 1939, you can read in US foreign policy documents that they hoped Germany would take out Soviet Union and Japan would take out China. It's interesting to note that at this time, both the US and Germany are giving military support to the KMT in China. And Goebbels, who's a big supporter of Chiang Kai-shek, also had um, Chiang Kai-shek's son working for him in Germany. What few Americans know is that many Chinese died, as many Chinese died as Russians in World War II. They say around 27 million Soviets died and over 20 million Chinese died. There was also barbaric scientific research and biological warfare that was carried out on the Chinese by Japanese. At a museum in Harbin, China, there are photos of Japanese science literally executing barbaric acts, um, in, infecting living human beings with this biological warfare and leaving them standing in meadows until they succumb to the effects and then burying them there. Those scientists went back to become the leading scientists in Japan. I bring this up in light of the quad Blinken gathered this week to remind us these alliances have a long history and how China might feel toward Japan. Another atrocity most Americans are not aware of is the rape of Nanjing in 1937, which also came to light in a war crimes tribunal, but that was in 1947. As we heard earlier, there was no need to drop the atomic bombs on Japan as surrender was near. This was also true in China, Nanjing had surrendered, but the Japanese entered. And in the next six weeks, somewhere between 300,000 were beheaded, raped, and subjected to barbaric violence. 
the loss of life close to that of the dropping of atomic bombs. Between the time of the Opium Wars and the Korean War, 100 million Chinese died in war at the hands of Europeans, American, Japanese, and internal civil wars. A century of invasion and violence. In 1949, China was 450 million citizens. That means more than 15% of their population had died. Just imagine that. They know this as the century of humiliation. Then China gets pulled into the US war in Korea. The barbarism and insanity of the US war in Korea is wretched and also not well known. I encourage you to follow the women cross the DMZ as this is another violence against humanity by US foreign policy. But it was also a huge price paid by China. None of the generals in China wanted to support the Workers Party of North Korea. They knew it was a bloodbath that no one could win and preferred to wait until the US was at their borders where they felt they could be more defensive. They are defensive in temperament and training. But Mao had a commitment to internationalism, a commitment to others. Who are you if you abandon your friends, those who have stood with you? He knew it was a big risk and it could have been the end of China. It was the end of his son who died in the battles with the US and North Korea, a huge and painful price. China had no tanks and no airplanes, and this was a loss of another million people. Here is when Sino-US relations fall apart because of China's support of the Workers' Party in Korea. And when it's over, the US sanctions against China are launched, and also they block China from becoming a member of the UN. My friend Georgia Kelly at Praxis for Peace Institute had security clearance in the 60s working on war papers at Stanford, where she read the intention of the US to isolate Afghanistan, Shenzhen, Tibet, Hong Kong, and Taiwan as tools to take over China. These reports start back in the 50s. Shenzhen has long been under the effects of US infiltration, including a request to the King of Saudi Arabia to bring Wahhabism to the Uyghurs, something the King even spoke about as strange. There was a plan to take over China, and we saw in these documents later a question, who lost China? imperialist language in itself as if they owned it priorly. Um, they felt that because Mao didn't like Stalin, they could do what they always do as um, colonialists, divide and conquer. But here's where American foreign policy failed. Also, the British had wanted Tibet since the end of the 1800s, invading Tibet in an attempt to pull it away from China. But they were not interested in national liberation for the Tibetan people, but colonizing them than Tibet, a theocracy um, with slaves. The infiltration of Tibet by the CIA is what provoked China's pushback. The CIA Tibetan program was a nearly two decades long anti-Chinese covert operation focused on Tibet, which consisted of political action, propaganda, paramilitary and intelligence operations based on US government arrangements made with the brothers of the 14th Dalai Lama and it states to keep the political concept of an autonomous Tibet alive within Tibet. This ended with Nixon's visit to China. Taiwan, there's no dispute, is Chinese territorial, um, under Chinese territorial control. But the US wants to use Taiwan as a base for military engagement and economic interests. Basically, it's Miami next to China. China's stuck. It can't allow US missiles sitting in Taiwan. How long did JFK allow Cuba to keep those missiles? 
you know, China sees it has 1.5 billion citizens to take care of, and it is not going to sit back and let U.S. aggression bring military presence closer to China. Cold War. This is part of a bigger international issue, and we've heard a bit about this today, but if the U.S. crushes China, it cripples the fight of people of the global south for possibly centuries. It cuts off progress for other ways to live together on this planet and for many would cut off hope for the human race and life on earth. A wave came from the west and destroyed everything, lives, culture, community, connectivity, and the health of the planet. We live in the dark times of this effect. We live in the belly of this beast. We need the wind that comes from the East to rebuild infrastructure and heal and create peace. European white maritime expansion started in 1492 to today with 500 years of European terror and white supremacy. Yet there was a Silk Road based on trade instead of war. Not the Europeans concept of trade, which was slave trade, but the exchanging of wares and creation. It is what we see from China, an extension of the Silk Road the question of how do we construct trade in a mutually beneficial way. Under the leadership of the CPC, China is the only country in recent decades that has become the world's second largest economy without resorting to warfare, colonialism, or slavery. For more than 10 consecutive years, China has contributed to over 30% of global GDP growth. 850 million people have been lifted out of poverty. China is the second largest contributor to the UN and has sent more than 40,000 UN peacekeeping personnel outnumbering other permanent members of the Security Council. The CPC also enjoys the highest rate of support and satisfaction from the Chinese people, over 90% according to the latest Harvard study. Another fact about China is that it has had strong central government for 2,200 years with a responsibility to society and a concern for the whole. So let us call this what it is, another boondoggle for the Pentagon and the weapons industry to distract, destabilize, destroy, and clean out the funds in the US needed to invest in a functioning society. We must change the narrative. No money for war. Funds need to be redirected to the needs of the people. Cut military spending, at least in security, death, and destruction. Yes to respecting human rights, starting with our own behaviors. We must not be used by the propaganda. It is being directed at the progressives and the lefts. We cannot spread hate. We must spread compassion. We cannot spread lies, but truth. We at Code Pink are here to help with tools, actions, and teachings. You can find them at Code Pink's China is not our enemy. We have to be fierce in the face of Biden's foreign policy, as it is still mostly Trump's. I'll post ways to engage in the chat. And I thank you for attending, for your passion for peace. Onward. It's my pleasure to now introduce Eric Mann. He, he's the host of Voices from the Frontlines, heard on KPFK FM 90.7 radio in Los Angeles here. He's a veteran of the Congress of Racial Equality and Students for a Democratic Society. And he's director of the Labor Community Strategy and co-chair of the Bus Riders Union. He's the author of Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of the Successful Organizer. I just wanna thank Aaron for having Rachel and myself on his show. 
uh, this Tuesday on KPFK. Derek, you there? I hope so. Hi, everybody. Um, this is a deeply moving experience. Uh, you know, I was like most of you, I think, very active in some way in the United Front to defeat Donald Trump and to elect uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, it was a tremendous victory in what we would call United Front against fascism. But it was not a united front against imperialism. And now we're faced rapidly with the Biden administration moving even in a more hawk-like fashion than the Trump administration. In fact, he ran on saying that Trump was soft on dictators from Venezuela to Russia to China. Uh, so we're now in a very difficult situation, which I think the Biden administration is trying essentially to integrate a multiracial imperialism to shore up some of the weaknesses of the present empire, but also carrying out the most extreme anti-Asian violence as we speak. With uh, just recently, Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin and, and, and uh, uh, Biden have threatened China in the most fundamental way. Imagine that the Department of So-Called Defense is involved in creating a new US power in the Pacific. Now, I come out of the tradition where the black movement and the anti-imperialist movement were both integral and that the black movement drove the anti-imperialist movement and vice versa. So the first thing that was important to understand is we believe that black people were a nation inside the United States, that Chicanos were a nation, indigenous people were an oppressed nation. We did not believe the United States was capitalist, but we believed it was imperialist. And therefore, when I joined the Congress of Racial Equality and SNCC, MFDP, there was all talk about black nationalism, black liberation, and therefore Vietnamese liberation and black liberation would be integral. The white movement was very important, Dr. Spock, uh, the great Daniel Ellsberg, but there's no question the black movement was the cutting edge and must be again of any successful anti-war, anti-imperialist movement. So it was SNCC that said, hell no, we won't go to Vietnam. It was Dr. King who said, the US is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. It was Malcolm who said, we will not fight in Vietnam. It was Muhammad Ali who said, the Viet Cong never called me the N-word. Uh, it was John Carlos and Tommy Smith who raised their hands at an Olympic and basically said, we don't represent the United States. We represent the third world and a black nation. That's, and it was Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers, if you read the book, Blacks Against Empire. But that's a great story, but we have to see the other side of it. Dr. King was assassinated. Malcolm was assassinated. Fred Hampton was assassinated. SNCC was repressed. Every one of us was repressed. Paul Robeson was repressed. The Rosenbergs were murdered. So when the Rosenbergs simply said, we don't want to give nuclear weapons to the United States, but not also to the Soviet Union, they were murdered for being peace organizers. So the reason I say that is because the teaching cannot simply be an exposure to the Cold War, but has to be a challenge to each of us to answer the question, what are we willing to do about it? which is what my life has always been about. So interestingly, in the real world, in the present, 
uh, brother, friend, Channing Martinez from the Labor Community Strategy Center, but running independently, he ran for the city council in the 10th district in Los Angeles, not even a majority black district anymore because of the genocide that the United States is carrying out against black people, including the liberal Democrats of Los Angeles, such as unfortunately Mayor Garcetti. But he ran on no police in the schools, no police on the MTA buses and trains. 50% of all new jobs must go to black applicants, open borders for all immigrants, free public transportation, no stop attack on black passengers, which in itself was phenomenally radical. But then he said, US hands off Venezuela, Russia, China, Iran, Iraq. And here's something important. The United States is not simply a ruling class. It's an imperialist country in which the majority of white people, in my opinion, are directly involved in national oppression. They're not simply confused by it, but they're active participants. And the effort of the United States through its armies, through its prisons, is trying to in, uh, organize everyone to be a pro-imperialist bloc. Now, Channing got 5% of the vote. If you know anything about real elections, that's phenomenal for a first candidate. And he got 10% of the black vote. And what we say and what I teach is set the edge, split the room, and then move the room to you. And what we saw is when you're at a candidate's night talking about these issues intelligently and thoughtfully, people who are pro-imperialist start to move because the logic of the argument, the morality of the argument. So one reason they wanted to keep the communists out of the trade unions, keep the communists out of the schools is because even in the midst of all this institutional power, they can't win the damn argument. They have to keep us out because if you're good organizers and you know how to work with people, not quantificate, but communicate and listen, these are very compelling arguments starting, of course, with black people who have been enslaved and indigenous people and Mexican people. So it's critical that the anti-imperialist movement be an integral part of the social reality of this country and not somewhat on the outside. Now, Michael Muirpool did a great job about books. I'm deeply moved by the book, The Jakarta Method, which is terrifying about what the United States did in Indonesia after the uh, Bandung Conference, by the way, in Indonesia. Then there's my book, Comrade George, An Investigation into the Life, Political Thought, and Assassination of George Jackson. Another one of my books, and it's interesting called Katrina's Legacy, the Black nation and the people of the world confront the US imperialist white settler state and its genocidal climate crimes. I think we have to go beyond talking about white supremacy to talk about a white settler state as integral to the country that we're trying to change. And then there's my book, Playbook for Progressives, the 16 Qualities of the successful organizer, because if you're not an organizer, as um, Marcy Winograd is, you can't succeed. And I want to end with a very encouraging story, which is uh, 
difficult. Uh, in September of 1969, I organized a demonstration against the Harvard Center for International Affairs. I had already been part of SDS at Columbia, where we took on the Institute for Defense Analyses. Uh, this was not a friendly demonstration. This was Henry Kissinger's Center for Death. We went in, we broke windows, we turned over our desks, we sprayed death to US imperialism, the black nation will rise, Ho, 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 Chi Minh, the young enough will go in the wind. And my good friend Howard Zinn said that was a very good nonviolent demonstration because no one was attacked except for us. However, I was sentenced to two years in prison for that demonstration and I served 18 months. Now, when I got into prison, four prisoners came up to me the first day I got there and said, Eric, we decided to become communists. I said, well, that's terrific. I didn't even get here yet. What led you to that conclusion? He said, well, you know, Charlie Kraft speaking for Jimmy Drummy and the others said, you know, I was in the cell and Joe, the screw, the guard said to me, hey, Charlie, we hate communists, right? And I said, yeah, we, we hate communists. He says, good, because there's a guy coming we got to hate. His name is Eric Mann. And you're not going to like him at all. First of all, he's for the blacks. And Charlie said, oh, is he black? No, I think he's one of those Jubies. You know, he's one of them. But he hates white people. Charlie said, wait, he, he likes black people, but he hates white people and he's a communist, right? He says, yeah. So we don't like him, right, Charlie? Charlie said, wait a minute. The person who's locking me up is telling me that I got to unite with him because we're both anti-communist. But if he's locking me up and he's anti-communist, then it must be logical that I must become a communist. And I'm going to tell all the other prisoners that apparently this guy coming in must be a real threat to them because the guards are trying to organize us. So I'd end by saying this. If you're Black, if you're Latino, Latinx, if you're Asian Pacific Islander, if you're indigenous, and yes, if you're white of conscience, and if the people who lock you up are pro-imperialist and anti-communist, wouldn't it be logical that you would become anti-imperialist and pro-communist? Because that's what I think you need to understand, is this country is locking us up and at the same time encouraging us to lock up the people all over the world. I believe we have a real chance to win. If you like this point of view, check me out at info at thestrategycenter.org. It's an honor to be part of this conversation. This is Channing Martinez, producer of Voices from the Frontlines. Thanks for tuning in today. Check out Voices from the Front Lines every Tuesday at 3 p.m. right here on KPFK and visit us on our podcast at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. I